Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 this morning and let's begin reading from verse 1 and then we'll open a word of prayer. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day. We thank you, Lord, for another opportunity to be uh, in this place and to, to worship you as a body of believers Lord, to sing praises unto your name. And Lord, to come round your word and to glean something from the wonderful truths contained therein. Lord, I pray that this morning as we continue our study in the book of Acts, that you would give me wisdom and guidance from on high, that you would empower me through the Spirit. And that, Lord, as we consider this passage this morning, that you would speak to each of our hearts through your word. May you teach us and instruct us, refresh us through your word. And, Lord, may we leave this, this morning, Lord, singing your praises and giving all glory and honour unto you. We pray you bless now our time in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so Acts chapter 17 begins uh, basically exactly where Acts chapter 16 left off. You remember Acts chapter 16, we're in uh, the city of Philippi. Okay, And last time we saw uh, the Philippian jailer and how the Lord uh, had used uh, that situation with Paul and Silas singing praises at midnight. The Lord used that to win uh, the Philippian jailer to him. Okay, come to salvation. At the end of chapter 16, they had to leave Philippi and they headed on to the next place. And so chapter 17 begins by telling us where they've gone next. They've left the city of Philippi and it tells us in verse 1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Okay, so we're given these the name of three cities here and we're, we're told exactly basically where they've gone. And so from these words, it becomes clear that Paul and his team have travelled west along what's known as the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. Okay? Um, and it's, it's on maps if you Google the, that uh, Philippi and that region there, you can see this, this Roman road. Okay? The Ignatian Way was a Roman road and it covered a total distance of 1,120 kilometres. It basically went from one side all the way across, one ocean to the next basically, uh, one sea, sorry, to the next, all the way across. And like other major Roman roads, okay, it was about six metres wide and it was paved with stone slabs or hard-packed layer of sand. Um, and when you look at the map of the region, Philippi is basically in the middle of this road that runs east to west. Okay? It's basically right in the middle of this road um, that the Romans had built, the Ignatian Way. And so Paul and his team, they've left Philippi and they've headed along this road, okay, this Roman road, uh, heading west in search of the next place that the Lord would have them to minister. And we're told they passed through these two cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia, um, without seeming to engage in any ministry there. Okay? He sort of just mentions them. He says he pa- they passed through these two cities. Uh, and Luke doesn't you know, indicate to us they stop and they engage in any ministry here of any sort. 
And he also doesn't tell us why they don't stop. Okay? He doesn't sort of give us any indication as to why they don't spend time ministering to these two cities. I mean, if you think back to Paul's first missionary journey, he basically stopped at every city along the way, didn't he? Okay? Every city he stopped and he preached and he started a work. But on this occasion, he passes quickly, it seems, through these two cities, which were fairly large cities. They're not just you know, tiny little places. They're actually large cities. And so there's people there near the gospel, but he passes through and heads straight to Thessalonica. And evidently, it's because that's the Lord's will, isn't it? Okay, remember, you know, Luke, uh, sorry, Paul is following the will of the Lord. I mean, that was evident at the start of Acts chapter 16, wasn't it? Where the Lord kept forbidding them of going certain directions. He kept turning them, okay? And that's the case here as well. The Lord is obviously rushing them forward to Thessalonica. The Lord has a plan. He has a, a purpose for them uh, in the city of Thessalonica. So they come to uh, this city, and it's approximately 160 kilometers from Philippi. Okay, so if you leave Philippi, you, you go along west along this road, you come to the, these other two cities, and they're all about the same distance apart, okay, or about 60 kilometers or so apart. And you come to finally Thessalonica, about 160 kilometers along this road. And so they've traveled a fair distance, haven't they? Okay, you've got to remember they're, they're probably not on horseback, they're probably on foot. Okay, and so this is going to take them quite a few days to make this journey. And when they arrive in this city of Thessalonica, they arrive to find a bustling metropolis, okay, uh, a, a city in need of the gospel. You see, Thessalonica was a, the Roman capital of Macedonia. Okay, that's where they are. Okay, they're, in the, they're in the region of Macedonia. And Thessalonica is the Roman capital of the region. It's the largest city in Macedonia. At this time, it was inhabited by approximately 200,000 people. Okay, so even in today's standards, this is a large city, isn't it? Okay, it's a large city that they've come to. It's also an important commercial centre as it's right on uh, the Aegean Sea there. It has a, a harbour, okay, an excellent harbour, so it's an important commercial centre as well. And we know from history that it was also known as what's called a free city. Okay, a free city. And basically, the reason for this was that they had supported Mark Antony. Okay, that name probably is familiar from history. They supported Mark Antony and they supported Augustus in their battle against those who assassinated Julius Caesar. Okay, so some people had risen up, assassinated Julius Caesar, and the city of Thessalonica had actually aided or worked with Mark Antony and Augustus, and by doing so, they'd earned the status of a free city. And basically what that means is that they were self-governing. Okay, it was a self-governing city. So they had their own elected assembly, okay, their own elected officials, and they also had their own coin. Okay, they were able to mint their own money for the city as well. Okay, so it was a free city. And this is the city that Paul and his missionary team now find themselves in, led of the Lord to ministry in next, this large metropolis of 200,000 people, Okay, this bustling city, this is where the Lord has led them to ministry. You know, Paul and his, his team don't miss the opportunity, do they? They don't miss the opportunity to share with them the gospel message. And so this morning, I want us to consider Paul's ministry here in the city of Thessalonica, as it's recorded for us by Luke. So first of all, this morning, we see his manner. We see his manner, or Paul's manner. Verse 1 it says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, 
they came to Thessalonica, where it was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. So we're told here that upon arrival in Thessalonica, Paul and his companions, immediately what they do is they seek out, once again, the local synagogue. Okay, they seek it out as the launching place for their missionary endeavours. Now that was as verse 2 states there, it says, and Paul as his manner was. This was Paul's manner. Okay, this was his usual approach. Okay, and we've seen that before in the book of Acts, haven't we? Okay, as we've been studying the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, this is his manner. This was his usual approach to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath after he arrives in a city and begin the ministry there. You know, Philippi in a lot of ways was the exception to the rule, wasn't it? Okay, and we talked about that when we looked at the city of Philippi. I mean, in the city of Philippi, there was no synagogue. And so instead, they went out to the river, okay, where the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles met for prayer. Okay, and so they went and found them there by the riverside. Just go back to Acts chapter 16 and let's just read verse 12. <clears throat> it says, And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony... And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was once to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Okay, so we saw that there in, in the city of Philippi, they went out to the riverside. That was the exception. Okay, that was, that was not the norm. It was, it was different. But here in Thessalonica, they're back to their usual manner, aren't they? They're back to doing as... Uh, they always did following the similar pattern of going to uh, the synagogue. And we've said it before, but the reason for this, of course, is that the synagogues provided an ideal platform, didn't they? Okay, an ideal platform for the preaching of the gospel. You know, basically they had a ready-made audience of people who already sought after the true God. I mean, you've got Jews and you've got God-fearing Gentiles gathered together. You've got a group of people who already have a knowledge of the Scriptures, you know, they have the Old Testament scriptures, they're studying them, they're learning them. And you have a group of people who are waiting for the Messiah. Okay, that's what they're waiting for, isn't it? So you have this group of people who are ready to receive the gospel, in a sense, it's a ready-made congregation. And so Paul uses this to his advantage, doesn't he? He exploits it, if you like, for the gospel message. You know, it was often the converts from this initial preaching in the synagogue which started the church. Okay, who ended up being the foundation of the local church within that particular city. But I think there is another reason why Paul always sought out the synagogue or the gathering place of the Jews as he did in Philippi. And the reason is because of his love for the people. His love for God's people, for his people, the Jews. Just turn over quickly to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 in verse 1, we read this, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That was Paul's desire, wasn't it? That was his passion. Okay? He, he loved his people. He loved the Jews. Now, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, that's true. That was his calling, wasn't it? Okay? But he still loved God's people. He still had a passion for his uh, fellow people, the Jews, he had a passion to give them the, the truth and to try and win them to Christ. 
Now, in some ways, it would have been easier for Paul to change his approach, wouldn't it? You know, you think about uh, every city he's been in so far, most times when he goes into the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews, they end up persecuting him, don't they, and chasing him out of the city. And so it would have been much easier for Paul, now that he's in Macedonia, to abandon that approach and to just go straight to the Gentiles. I mean, the Gentiles were more open, the Gentiles more receptive to the message. He could have changed his approach, but you know, his love for God's people meant he always took them the message first. And we're told in verse 2 that Paul reasoned with them for three Sabbath days. Okay? It says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He reasons with them for three Sabbath days. Now, upon you know, first reading, this gives the impression to us that Paul and his team are only in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, okay, for three weeks okay, before they leave. I mean, that seems to be what it's saying. Okay? They, they were there they, for three, three Sabbaths, they ministered, and then they left. But it's clear from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that he was there for a much longer period than this. Okay? He, he actually was with them for an extended period of time. And in the book of Philippians, he also talks about how the Philippians had had time to send him gifts. Okay? So he's there for a period of time, enough time to receive two gifts from the Philippians as well. So he's probably there in uh, Thessalonica for at least a couple of months. Okay? A lot longer than just these three Sabbaths. So instead, what this is saying here in verse 2, when it says that he reasoned with them for three Sabbath days, it's indicating to us that Paul and his team had three opportunities. Okay? He had three opportunities in the synagogue to reason with them before he was barred. Okay? He had three Sabbaths to reason with them, and then they had enough of him and said, that's it, you're barred, you can't speak unto us again. And so from that point on, he's obviously continued the ministry elsewhere, okay, in another location, perhaps in, as we'll see later on, the house of Jason. Okay? He's continued uh, the ministry here in the city of Thessalonica. But while he has the opportunity to minister in the synagogue, Paul uses the opportunity wisely. And so secondly here this morning we see his method. We've seen his manner. Secondly here this morning we see his method. Uh, verse 2 again it says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days he reasoned with them, out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. In the second part of verse 2 and verse 3, Luke now tells us Paul's method for giving them the gospel message. Okay, he, he, he tells us how Paul went about doing this. You know, in previous passages in the book of Acts, Luke has actually recorded for us Paul's message as a whole. Okay? He's basically almost dictated it for us to some extent. Okay? The actual message that Paul preached in that particular synagogue. Uh, for instance, in Antioch of Pisidia. Just turn back there to Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> I'm not going to read all of it, but uh, Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, it says, and when, Now when Paul and his company were loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, uh, and were, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have word of exhortation for the people, say on. 
Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel, uh, sorry, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm he brought them out. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And he goes on. Okay, he basically gives them a bit of a history lesson. Okay, and then he draws it into focusing on Christ. Okay, and so you can read it there. He goes from verse uh, 15 there all the way down to verse 40. You have recorded for us Paul's message okay, that he preached in Antioch of Pisidia. But here in Acts chapter 17, instead of actually recording for us the message, what Luke does is he sort of tells us how Paul went about okay, uh, preaching to them. He sort of gives us the method. He doesn't record the actual sermon. He records Paul's method of preaching, if you like. And you know, we can assume that he probably preaches a similar message to Acts chapter 13. Okay, it's probably a very similar idea. Okay, but, uh, but Luke here instead records for us his method. And there are a few important things that we can take note of here. First of all, we see that he preached out of the scriptures. Okay, he preached to them out of the scriptures. The end of verse 2 it says, And three Sabbath days reason with them out of the scriptures. Now, of course, the New Testament is not written yet, so we're talking about the Old Testament, aren't we? Okay, he's taking the Old Testament scriptures as we just saw in Acts chapter 13, taking the Old Testament scriptures and he's reasoning to them from the scriptures. Now, Paul understood that if he was going to reach the Jews, if he was going to reach these God-fearing Gentiles, then he needed to convince them from the scriptures, didn't he? Okay, it was the scriptures that they needed to, to hear and they needed to have their eyes open with. It was the scriptures. You know, see, Paul understood that it was no good him using his own logic, you know, just using his own reason, his own logic or his own human wisdom was not going to get them saved, was it? He needed to reason with them out of the Scriptures. You see, it was the Scriptures that must do the convincing through the power of the Spirit, isn't it? Okay, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 15, Paul says this, he says, The Holy Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. It's the Scriptures that opens the eyes of men to the truth, isn't it? It's the scriptures that the Holy Spirit uses to work in hearts and lives and soften them to the truth of the gospel. And so we see that he used the scriptures. We see, secondly, that he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. At the end of verse 2 again, it says, He reasoned with them, okay, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. The word reason there is the Greek word dialogeto. Okay, and it means to converse or to discourse with one or discuss. And it's from this Greek word that we get the English word dialectic. Okay, now, it's not a word we hear often. And I didn't even know what it meant. But basically, it means to discuss and reason with dialogue. Okay, dialogue comes from that Greek word as well. Okay, but it's dialectic. It's this idea of discussing and reasoning with conversation. Okay? And so the whole idea is that Paul is having a conversation with them. Okay, he's not just lecturing them, he's actually preaching that with, to them and then receiving questions and he's answering. Okay, that's the idea here. Okay, there's a questioning and answering going on okay, from the scriptures. Okay, there's a dialogue going on between Paul and the members of the synagogue. They're asking him questions and he's answering them with the word of God, the scriptures. And it's important, isn't it, that the answers he gives are from the Scriptures, isn't it? Okay, it's important. 
that's where he's going for the answers. He's not using re- his own reasoning. He's not using his own logic, his own wisdom. He's going to the word of God. Because these are the only answers that matter. Okay, if you're going to convince someone of the truth, it's the word of God they need. And so he reasons with them from the scriptures. And he does this thirdly here so that he might open their eyes to the truth. Okay, at the start of verse 3 there, it says opening. You see, Paul, through reasoning, was opening their eyes to a truth that before now they hadn't seen. They hadn't understood. This word opening here is the same word that's used in chapter 16 and verse 14 to describe Lydia's heart being opened to the truth. Okay, in chapter 16, verse 14, just read it with me. It says, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. That's the same Greek word, this idea of opening. Okay, and that's what's talking about here. It's the idea that through reasoning with the scriptures, Paul was seeking to open their eyes to the truth. Okay? Open their eyes to something that before now was concealed. Okay? Before now, they, they didn't understand this truth. They couldn't see this truth. It was concealed to them. They were blind. It was obscure. And so through reasoning with the scriptures, he's helping them to see. He's opening their eyes. And fourthly, we see that he's using the scriptures to prove his argument as well. Okay, it says at the start of verse 3, opening and alleging. Alleging. The word alleging here means setting something before someone or to prove by presenting the evidence. That's what he's doing. He's alleging. He's proving with the evidence that something is true. And so Paul is using the scriptures to prove that what he is preaching is indeed fact. It's the truth. He's taking the scriptures, if you like, and he's expounding them, isn't he? Okay, he's explaining the scriptures under them to prove his points. And so we see here a very clear method, don't we, to Paul's preaching. There's a very clear method to it. He's taking the scriptures and he's reasoning with them from them to open their eyes and prove the truth of his message and in verse 3 then at the conclusion there it tells us what this message is okay what exactly his message is that he is seeking to get across okay opening and alleging that christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this jesus whom i preach unto you is christ now paul's message if you like could be uh, divided into two points Okay, firstly here, he wanted them to understand from the scriptures that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. That's what it says there in verse 3, doesn't it? Okay, that's what he's reasoning from the scriptures to open their eyes and prove to them that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again. You see, he's speaking to members of the synagogue here, isn't he? Okay, you've got the Jewish members and you've got the, the Gentile God-fearers. That's who he's talking to. And he wants them to understand that the Old Testament scriptures indicate or teach, prophesy, that the Messiah, the Christ, must suffer, die, and rise again. That's what he's, he's pointing out to them. That's what he's reasoning with them from the scriptures. He's, he's showing them that the Messiah, the one they're looking for, must suffer, die, rise again. And so no doubt Paul is taking them to 
Old Testament passages like Isaiah 53. Now he's taking them to those passages and saying, this is what it says of the Messiah, of the Christ, that he must suffer. He's probably also taking them to passages like Psalm 16, which talks about the Messiah rising again. Okay, the, Thou will not leave my soul in hell. Okay, he talks about the Messiah rising again. He's, he's taking them to these Old Testament passages, these prophecies, and showing them that this is about the Messiah. The Messiah must suffer, die, and rise again. You see, this is before ever he points out that Jesus is the Messiah. He's first of all laying the groundwork, isn't he? Okay, he's, he's showing them the truth from the Old Testament, proving them that this is what was said concerning the Christ. And it's then that he comes to his second point in declaring unto them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the one they were looking for. The end of verse 3 there, it says, And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. So he proved from the scriptures that the Messiah must suffer, die, rise again. And then he says, and that one is Christ, is Jesus. He's already come. He's leading them on a, on a path, isn't he? Okay? He's leading them categorically down this road. And then he declares wonderfully to them, the Messiah has already come. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's come. He's fulfilled these prophecies. And so Paul has demonstrated clearly with scripture, hasn't he? That's the whole point here. His reason to open their eyes and prove that Jesus is their Messiah. And that salvation, therefore, is found in him and him alone. And at verse 4, then, we, we see there's an immediate result, don't we? Okay, in verse 4, it says, And some of them believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. And so immediately, there is a result. Okay, Paul is preached he's taught them he's instructed them he's he's used god's word to reason open their eyes and prove this truth and there is an immediate result some get saved more than some a great multitude it says and particularly among this group who get saved there's it says devout greeks or this is the god-fearing gentiles okay it says a great multitude of them get saved we're also told that a a group of chief women okay not a few in other words, a large group of the chief women get saved. Okay? These are the influential women okay, who get saved as well. They believe the truth. It's interesting, isn't it, that again, it's not many of the Jewish men who receive. There is some, okay, but they're not the ones who receive it in, in, in the whole, is it? They're the ones who reject it, as we'll see. It's the Gentiles and it's the chief women who receive this wonderful truth. But there is a considerable group who respond in verse 4. You know, and they lay the foundations of the church in Thessalonica. You know, the church that he writes to in First and Second Thessalonians is founded on this group who get saved. You know, in Paul's method here of delivering the message, I think there's a pattern for us to follow, isn't there? You know, a pattern for us to follow in our own witnessing to the lost. You see, like Paul, we need to take the scriptures, don't we? You know, it's not our own reasoning that's going to get people saved. It's not our own logic, our own wisdom. No, it's the scriptures that we need to use. We need to take the scriptures and from them we need to reason with people, seeking to open their eyes and prove to them their need of the Savior. Showing them that that Savior is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, if you like, there's a, there's a different starting point, isn't there, for the people we witness to. 
Okay, we're not talking to the Jews raised on the Old Testament and looking for the Messiah. You know, so Paul just started with the Messiah, didn't he? We have to start almost back at the beginning, don't we? We do have to start at the beginning. We have to go back to the beginning and prove to them that God exists from the Word of God. Show them that God is the creator, that God is the one who created everything we see around us. We have to show them God's love and grace. Show them that Adam and Eve sinned, which means that we're all sinners. We have to take them on a journey, don't we? You have to show them, reason with them from the scriptures, open their eyes to the truth that they're sinners, prove to them that they need a saviour and that that saviour is the Lord Jesus Christ. But it all comes back to the word of God, doesn't it? It's no good us reasoning from any other point. It's the word of God that we need to use as the foundation. It's the word of God, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. It's the word of God that brings men to salvation. So we need to follow this method. And you know, when we do follow this method like Paul, we will see results. Because God promises not to let his, his word return unto him void. We will see results. People will get saved. And indeed, we have seen people saved, haven't we, as a church over the years. But unfortunately, the sad truth is that not everyone will believe. And we need to be aware of that, don't we? We need to accept that as a reality. Not all will believe, even if we do everything right. You know, we take the scriptures, we reason with them to open their eyes and prove this wonderful truth. Not everyone's going to accept that. Not everyone's going to receive the truth. There's always going to be those who reject the truth. And even here in Thessalonica, there is a group who reject. And that's what we see lastly here this morning and quickly. We see the opposition. The opposition, just read with me verse 5. It says, but the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city in uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Now once again, as we've seen many times before in the book of Acts, it's the unbelieving Jews who caused the problem, isn't it? It's not the Gentiles stirring up the trouble here, it's the Jews, because they don't like what Paul is teaching. They don't like the direction he's taking the people. So the unbelieving Jews, they stir up the city. We read here that they basically, what they do is they hire thugs, don't they? Okay, they hire certain lewd fellows. They hire thugs to stir up the city against Paul and his companions. And it works. Okay, it works. Soon the whole city is agitated against Paul and against his companions and against this new body of believers. At the end of verse 5, we read they assault the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. They get in an uproar and then they go and assault the house of Jason. And evidently, Paul and his companions were known to be associates of Jason. Um, Perhaps even they're staying in Jason's house. As I said earlier, maybe that's where the church is now meeting, in Jason's house. But this is where the mob looks for Paul and his companions, they go to the house of Jason. And when they don't find them, what do they do? When they don't find Paul, Timothy and Silas, instead they grab Jason and the other brethren. These ones who just got saved. Just got saved. They grab these new Christians and they drag them before the rulers. Verse 6. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come Hither also. They grab Jason and others and they drag them before the rulers. 
instead of Paul and Silas and Timothy. You know, we can't find them, we'll take the next best thing. And the accusations that they brought against Paul and his companions, there was two of them. The first one was that they turned the world upside down, as we saw in verse 6. And the second accusation was that they were preaching that there's another king. Jesus is king, verse 7, okay? Whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. So these are the two accusations. They've turned the world upside down, and they're teaching that there's another king, one Jesus. You know, the first accusation here, turning the world upside down, was basically a charge of civil, um, sorry, disrupting the civil order, okay? Creating civil unrest, that's what this charge was. You know, it's very similar to the accusation that was brought against them in Acts chapter 16. Okay, if you remember when they cast out the, the demon out of the slave girl, her masters went to the magistrates and basically said the same thing. They're causing unrest, civil unrest. You know, it was an accusation that the Romans took very seriously. The Romans didn't like civil unrest of any, any kind. They stamped it out very quickly. And so it was a very serious accusation. But, you know, it shows to us the impact they were having, doesn't it? It shows to us the impact that Paul and his missionary team were having upon the world. I mean, because they basically, you know, say this is what they've done before coming here. Okay, it says crying, then verse 6 there, crying these that have turned the world upside down and come thither also. You know, it's possible they've probably heard about Philippi and what's taken place there and what they, what they did there, and they're saying these, these are the ones who are causing everything to be turned upside down. These are the ones who are turning the world upside down, causing all this problem. You know, wherever they went, this is exactly what they were doing, wasn't it? They were preaching a new way of thinking. They were preaching new ideals, that Jews and Gentiles are all one in Christ. They were preaching salvation, preaching love and compassion unto all people. They were turning the world upside down. They were turning the world upside down for Christ, weren't they? It's a good thing to be accused of, really. And the second accusation that they were preaching that Christ is king, you know, basically that was an accusation of political revolution, wasn't it? Okay, they were basically saying they're turning the people against the Roman Empire, against the emperor. You know, and if found guilty, this meant death, basically. Okay, they were traitors. Basically, they would be put to death. You know, this was the same charge that was brought against Christ at his trial, wasn't it? As he stood before Pilate, this is the same thing. He claims to be the king of the Jews. Now, Paul and his companions, they did preach that Christ is king. They were guilty. But they were preaching that Christ is king in heaven, in a heavenly sense, wasn't he? Okay, he was a spiritually king. His, his kingdom was not of this earth. His kingdom is a heavenly one. It's a spiritual kingdom. A kingdom which will come to earth in the millennial reign... But when Paul and Silas and Timothy were preaching about it, it was the spiritual kingdom. And so their words were twisted, but they were preaching that Christ is king. But you know, in the end here, because they can't find Paul and Silas and Timothy, the rulers of the city, basically what they do is they make Jason and the others post a bond. A bond guaranteeing that Paul and his companions will leave town and not return, not cause any more Trouble. Verse 8, it says, And they troubled uh, the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Okay, taking security there, that's what it means. Basically, it means taking a bond. They took a bond 
of Jason and of the others. A bond that basically forced Paul and Paul, Silas and Timothy to leave town. That's basically what it did. It forced them to move on. Now later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul wrote this. He said, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Most commentators believe that when he says Satan hindered us, he's referring to that bond. Okay, most commentators believe that's what he's referring to. He's saying, we want to come, we want to minister, but we can't because Satan has hindered us and it's the bond. Because you see, if he returned and ministered, Jason would lose everything and indeed the others would. Okay, it would cause more problems for Jason and those who posted the bond. And so in a sense, it's because of this, they were not allowed back in the city. It, it restricted them. Satan had restricted them. Satan had hindered the work in Thessalonica. You know, Satan might have hindered Paul and his missionary team, but he certainly didn't hinder the spread of the gospel. He might have stopped them and hindered them from coming back, but he didn't stop the work of the gospel. Just turn over quickly as we finish this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Acacia. And from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, sorry, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. They themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and now you turn, uh, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It says in verse 8, Therefore from you sounded out the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is still sounding forth from Thessalonica. The church is faithful. Paul commends them for sounding forth the message. You see, the church continued to be effectual, didn't it? Satan had hindered the work, yes, but he didn't stop the work because the Lord still works through this wonderful new work, this church, this body of believers. Now, as we close this morning, I trust that we'll pray the Lord will help us, like Paul and his missionary team, to turn the world upside down. Now, as I was thinking about it this week, you know, that really is what we should do, turn the world upside down for Christ. And it starts with our little corner of the world, doesn't it? The Clarence Valley. It starts with our place here, turning the world upside down, for Christ. You know, the gospel message is still the same, isn't it? You know, people still need to hear, they still need the same message, and the method of giving it to them hasn't changed. Like Paul and his team, we need to take the scriptures, the word of God, and reason with people, seeking to open their eyes and prove to them that they're sinners and in need of a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's close in the word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you once again for the book of Acts. And Lord, we thank you for your Apostle Paul and his, his companions and the missionary journey. And Lord, we pray that indeed you would help us as a body of believers to be effectual in this place. Help us, Lord, to indeed turn the world upside down, turn this valley upside down for you. Lord, help us to, like Paul, take the scriptures and reason with people, to open their eyes and prove to them the wonderful truth. Christ is their saviour, who loves them and wants them to spend eternity with him, with him, with you. 
Lord, help us to be faithful in this ministry. Help us to have opportunities even this week to present the gospel unto others, we pray. Bless as we close now and we pray these things in Jesus' name.